I'm Sam Jima, host of the Geopolitics of Business, the show where we explore what happens when business and politics collide and how leaders respond. This week on the show, we look at superpowers in the world, specifically how the economic and political fortunes and strategies of China and the U.S. are changing and what this means for business. Basically, our clients are multinational corporations, about 120 of the Fortune 500 companies. What they have to think about is how do I de-risk myself in a very, very complicated world, number one. Number two, how do I think like a politician? Because unfortunately, as a CEO, I have to start thinking like a politician now. That's Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Vice Presidential nominee to Mitt Romney in the 2012 election, and now Vice Chairman of Tineo, the global CEO advisory firm. In this episode, we dive into U.S. politics. How does the current state of American democracy impact its engagement with the world? What does the 2024 U.S. election hold and what it all means for business? This is our first deep dive into the U.S. elections, and we will do several episodes next year as the politics unfolds. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I mean, you were famously called one of the young guns. Yeah. (laughs) A group of Republican politicians who were going to usher in the Republican Party into a new era. And what did that feel like then? Well, it worked for a while. We got a lot of our policy agenda passed. I was able to, my my big achievement that I worked on, because I was I was Ways Means member for most of my career, chairman of that committee, I wanted to rewrite the U.S. tax code uh, to make it more pro-growth, and we did that. We got a lot of regulatory relief passed during the Trump years, um, but we had not gotten entitlement reform done. That was one of the big things that I wanted to do, which it's just politically very, very, very difficult to do. And so I'd say mixed bag. We got a lot of our agenda passed, but not not nearly all that we had wanted to get passed. We we had a fairly ambitious agenda, but that that was the beginning of what I call the Tea Party wave, which was an ideologically inspired policy leading movement, and we were a policy leading party at the time. That's not exactly where we are right now. We're more of a populist political leading movement and party. Uh, than we were then. And it's more of a cult of personality type politics and populism that we have right now. Um, I'm all for populism, provided it's tethered to principles that are good principles. Right now, I'm not sure that we have that kind of populism. That's that's what's frustrating and that's what's regretful at this time. So how do the young guns feel about the rise of MAGA, you know, Make America Great Again um, movement that uh, Trump led? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it it came with a specific set of principles and policies attached to it other than the cult personality of Donald Trump. And he did, he does deserve credit for bringing new people into the party. We used to call them Reagan Democrats. Ronald Reagan did the same thing, bringing, you know, sort of Catholic blue collar union households into the Republican tent. Donald Trump then, you know, followed up with, with a similar move. Um, But I think, you know, he himself is, he's not an ideological guy. He's sort of a, um, uh, uh, you know, if he if there's an ideology, it's protectionism and, and isolationism, if there's an ideology. But I think it's more of a narcissistic thing with him in particular. But, you know, I, I do hope that out of this can come a fusion of what I would call, you know, Western classical liberal conservatism, you know, Burkean conservatism with popular sentiments like limited government, free markets. Uh, that that was there in MAGA. You just see other things in MAGA, and I and I and I'd like to think we can get a fusion that's winning. We have two bases in our party. 
we have the MAGA, you know, blue color base, um, rural. And then we also have the college educated suburban base. And that is more of a classical conservative base. If you confuse the two of them together, you will win elections, you will win congresses, you will win presidencies. And so the, the secret is to how to do that. You can't do it with Trump. He's he's kryptonite to suburbanites. And and, and you got to find somebody that can traffic with both bases. We have those people. We just got to get past Trump. Which is interesting, right? Because you know, we, we've all saw what happened on January the 6th, 2021. Protesters storm in the Capitol, incited, encouraged by the then sitting president. And Trump is now heading the polls into an election year. I mean, the election is a still a long way away. You know, one 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 of the things we say here in the UK is that a week is a long time in politics. But um, Trump is ahead now in some of the polls. And you wonder, what does that tell us about the health of American democracy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think our democracy is strong. I just think it's it's we have two terrible alternatives on the top of our ticket. It's 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 a testament of a couple of things. Number one, Biden is is inherently weak. And so I think it's a testament of Biden's weakness. Number two, uh, Trump is very entertaining and has a pretty good core of, of support. There's also about half the Republicans don't want him. So there is if someone could consolidate that non-Trump support, let's just say Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, it's going to be one of those two. If someone could consolidate that support, that person can demonstrate, Nikki in particular with polls, that they can win the election. So the argument people like me who are, who are non, you know, you know, we're never again Trumpers, we make an argument of let's win and let's win with, with a purpose, with, with a vision, with a mandate. And, a, and I'm, I haven't endorsed anybody, but a, but a Nikki Haley candidacy in the polls crushes Biden. Now, now Biden's so weak that even Trump is beating him in, in a lot of states, but Nikki Haley sweeps the country, gets us a Reagan type of 1980s election. If you have a conservative that both bases, the suburban base and the mega base can like, that person destroys Biden and brings in, you know, a better House Republican majority and a, and a nice sized Senate Republican majority. I think it's pretty clear in the polling and most of us who've been around in politics um, feel pretty clear that that's the case. With Trump, we could easily lose the House. We still could just because of the way that the, the, the map works. We still should get the Senate because our map is so good. But I think at the end of the day, he loses to Biden. Unless Biden has some, you know, awful, obvious senior moment, you know, late, uh, I still think Biden beats him. Even though Biden is extremely weak and he has a backstop, Kamala Harris, that's very unpopular, I still think Biden ends up beating Trump because there are just too many suburban voters that we rely on to put our vote coalition together that will never vote for Donald Trump. And it's only gotten worse for him with them since January the 6th. So as a party statesman, if I'm to call you that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm an elder statesman. I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a statesman in the party. What, what do people like you do to engineer the outcome that you think is better for the party in the country? I doubt you're just sitting on your hands. You must be part of conversations, um, get togethers to try and get the outcome that you think is more favorable? The conversation we have with candidates and the public uh, messaging that we, we give is more or less what I just said. We are much more likely to lose with Trump. Even with we, if we win with him, he's unfit for office, for you know ethics, morals, 
just honesty. He doesn't have those things. Look, I don't personally hate the man. I, I governed with him for two years, talked to him every day for two years. I just don't think he's fit for office. I just don't think he is fit for the for this job. Um, most people, you, you want a leader to, to attempt to be a moral, ethical, honest person. He doesn't do any of that. But more to the point, if he did get elected, he is so toxic, he won't get anything done anyway. So we, we try to make practical arguments to our voters that you may love him, but there's going to be a better second choice for you that's much more likely to win and, by the way, get things done. And then there are other outside group efforts, you know, like the Coke Network and others that are working feverishly to try and consolidate behind a single non-Trump conservative. Whether that works or not, you know, we don't know the answer to that. There's never really been an effort like this before. Usually you just you let the organic way of the, of the campaign work itself through the system. But there's definitely an effort to try and consolidate. And it's going to come down to Haley and DeSantis, I think. Um, and if you had to put money on it, if you had to, you know, pick a growth stock, it's Nikki Haley. But, you know, I don't think people are just willing to defer right at this time. And then we look at where we are today, and it seems that dysfunctional government is the norm in the U.S. Is that a fair characterization? It's a temporary, it's, it's for the moment, I think that's correct. This is not American democracy for the, for the future. This is the moment we are in. It's an unworkable majority. But again, I like, as a conservative, I like where we are versus where the progressives are. The progressives are not popular. The progressives are doing well by default because we're blowing ourselves up and fighting each other. But their vision is not a popular vision. It's not, it's, it's been road tested and it's failed. And so all we have to do is get past Trump, a person, a, a populism right around a person, and then get on to a nice, healthy, healthy debate what the future of conservatism look like, looks like. And it's some kind of fusion, as I described. The Democrats have a deeper problem. They've got an ideological problem. They, and, and their core of their party is a long, enduring ideology. That is harder for them to get over that, easier for us to get over our momentary problems. So frankly, you know, I'm bullish on our odds, our chances of conservatives. And I do think this dysfunction is a moment. It's a moment. It may last four years. But it's, it's, it's a moment that's a single-digit year moment, in my opinion. Then you, 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 you sort of look at the consequences. You mentioned appropriations there. I mean, we've seen financial support for the war in Ukraine and aid to Israel being delayed, which kind of raises a broader question of the consequences of the U.S. government not being able to function in a cohesive way for the rest of the world. And how, how do you kind of assess that situation? Yeah, I don't like the story. I don't like the way it looks for my my Tory friends overseas and, and around the world. Uh, I do have a lot of friends in the Tory party, and, and they ask me all these same questions. Uh, we'll get through it. Again, it's a, it's a slim majority. We do have protectionists and isolationists in our ranks. The majority of Republicans in Congress are for supporting Ukraine, and all of the Democrats are. So I'm not worried about Ukraine getting support. Um, it's just going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. I think what Speaker Johnson is proposing is perfectly sensible, getting border security reforms combined with that. That's actually, he's doing Biden a favor by leveraging this to get Biden to support it because Biden has a serious political weakness there and it's a real policy problem for him. And so I do think you'll get Ukraine support and it will probably be because Biden will concede to some border security. In Israel, everybody's for Israel. That is not, you know, it's like 10 Democrats are against supporting Israel. I think that was the last vote, maybe 12. 
So Israel, slam dunk, support for Israel will endure, will be there. And I am confident we will, at, at the end of the day, get support for Ukraine as well. It's Now, if Trump wins, that's a different story on Ukraine. But for the moment we're in, we're, we will get Ukraine, I believe, they're funding for the rest of the year. That's exactly where, where, where I was going with it, which is um, where is the risk of compassion fatigue for Ukraine? Yeah, you know, I'm a conservative uh, who believes in in strong international, you know, institutions. I believe in the fight we have for the West. I believe we basically have free societies versus oppressive authoritarian regimes. And the tip of that spear in that fight is Ukraine. So I see, in my opinion, this is all related. Taiwan, Israel, Ukraine, these are interrelated things. So people like me and my part of the party feel very strongly about this. Uh, we have to do a better job of communicating to our base supporters why this matters to them. And when you do so against the grain of a Trump sort of isolationism, you know, makes it more challenging. But I, I'll tell you that isolationism is not universal. And Trump himself kind of skips around the issue a little bit. He's not so full throttle pro-Putin. You know, he's got this weird authoritarian gene in him where he, he thinks like that, he acts like that, he wishes he was one, I think, but that it, the party's not following into, the, into that ditch. So I think that's more unique to Trump. And then there are some movements, there are some voices on the right that have that isolationist strain, but it is not the majority. I really don't believe it's the majority of our party. Then sort of across the political system, obviously your party, but across the political system, um, China is obviously one of the issues which you'd say there is unity across the, the U.S. Uh, political system. Recently, Biden met Xi Jinping to ease tensions a bit. And certainly reading the news coverage, it looks like it was as positive as it could have gone. You know, yes, there is strategic rivalry. But the, the question here is, how do you stop the whole situation getting out of control? There is political capital to be gained domestically from ramping up the rhetoric. Yeah, well, you don't want to put all your policy in place in 2024 during an election year is the answer to that question, which is right now, if you get something out of Congress, it's going to be sound bipartisan legislation. Uh, 2025 is going to be more of a policymaking year, I think, for our China policy. The question is, can we have a smart decoupling policy that uses a scalpel to sever off that in which we do not want to trade because it's sensitive to our national security interests while preserving a foundation for a global economy that doesn't do damage needlessly to all of us in the world. And that's the sweet spot. I think we can get there. Biden is, is making a, a sincere attempt at doing that. So I don't want to be critical of him and his administration, because I think their construct, sort of a you know small garden, high fence, I think is the word, the phrase they use, makes sense. And the Democrats will not allow themselves to get too far out of sync with the country and the Republicans on this issue. So you're going to see, you know, everybody's sort of hugging each other like boxers hugging each other. Um, and what's interesting about where Congress is, is it's actually fairly productive. Um, in the House, we have two great legislators, one of my protégés from Wisconsin, Mike Gallagher, but a great Democrat, uh, a smart guy named Raj Krishnamurthy, a Chicago Democrat, is the counterpart on that China Select Committee. And they have very good members of their committees. They put the best and the brightest and the most talented members of Congress from the Republican Democrats on that committee to forge a durable bipartisan China policy. There is clearly an effort, and it'll probably, like you say, because of politics, it will probably will overshoot, we'll get a little, we'll be a little rough, a little crude, 
But I think we'll have an intelligent decoupling policy where we must decouple from China for the sake of our national security. So should our allies, for that matter. Um, and then the question is, can we have, you know, on, on goods and services that are, you know, agriculture and textiles and things like that, that don't affect our national security, can we have a modicum of, of a foundation of stable, you know, global economic growth? I think the answer to that is yes. I think it's in our interest to do that. And China is weak right now. China has a lot of problems. And so I think they're looking for that landing spot. And I think we had to find it with them. Can you take me to your time as speaker and um, a particular negotiation in the foreign policy space that you handled and um, how you dealt with that? Well, we did free trade then. <laughs> so, yeah, I did trade agreement. I did a lot of trade agreements in my day. That was the committee I ran. You know, I tried to get TPP with Obama at the end. I, I, I couldn't. We just ran out of clock. We couldn't get it, especially when Clinton and Trump came out against it. But we made bipartisan agreements on many trade issues with Obama, with Bush and Democrats. We had taken a pause from trade for a while. But back to the China issue, through the lens of good, effective China policy, I think trade will come back into vogue. And I think that is the way to get back to getting good agreements with our allies, with free societies, trading with one another, co-authoring the rules of the road, such that it becomes digitization, digitization of currencies, privacy, freedom, those kinds of things, and trade. So I, I do think that there is an era ahead of us of multilateral cooperation among free societies to sort of ring fence China intelligently particularly because of technology, whether it's AI, quantum, semiconductors, and the rest. And I think that that moment is coming. And, and the problem is we just have two front runners that no one really is excited about. But I think we'll get there. I, I do think we'll get there. The issue that concerns me the most is are the domestic issues. Can we fix our immigration laws so we can deal with you know securing our border and getting our labor supply where it needs to be? Because it's not too far off it's solvable. We, unlike many other countries, our labor supply problems with boomers retiring is solvable. Our big problem is our entitlements, our debt, our deficits, and, and we're the world's reserve currency. We'd like to remain that. And so I think if we can get ahead of that problem, we're going to have a fantastic century. It's going to be good for the free world. It's going to be good for the West. And I think I think we can do that if we have good leadership. Regrettably, right now, we don't have that. You, you are um, now also a vice chair of Teneo, the global advisory firm. What is top of mind for the clients you are engaging with? What are they asking you about the U.S.? Yeah, we speak with basically our clients are multinational corporations, about 120 of the Fortune 500 companies. What, what they have to think about is how do I de-risk myself in a very, very complicated world, number one. Number two, how do I think like a politician? Because unfortunately, as a CEO, I have to start thinking like a politician now. So we help these you know, our clients think through, how do you think through as, as a CEO beyond just the typical, you know, thing you learn at business school? How do you lead an organization in this very complex political environment in a very unstable world global environment? Oh, and by the way, with more expensive credit, you know, credit is going to be more expensive. No way, no matter how you slice it, just for the demand of bonds that sovereigns are going to be having in our credit markets, that in and of itself is going to push up interest rates and make the cost of capital more expensive. And it, when you when you look at building resilience, relocating supply chains, de-risking, whatever you want to call it, there's a huge emphasis now clearly on sort of buy American. Is that a viable long-term strategy for multinationals? 
Yes, it's just going to be more inflationary and more expensive. But yes, it is because you don't have a choice. You have to build redundant and resilient supply chains. Actually, my other hat is I'm a partner of a private equity firm, Solomir, and one of our big investment bets is on North America, simply because of the de-risking that is occurring for both decoupling with China and de-risking your supply chains, that which, which were proven too elongated in COVID. Too many vulnerabilities in the supply chain. And when you have this kind of a complicated world stage and decoupling, you need to reshore some of this. And so we're looking at the pinch points in North America. And frankly, I think North America is a pretty solid bet in this deglobalized economy. I'm not saying it's a good thing for the global economy, but I think North America is a very good bet in this era of a deglobalized economy. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be more inflationary. But inside of these things are more opportunities. If you're a global CEO, it's going to be more expensive. You're just going to have to have redundancies and resilient supply chain and you're going to have to definitely look at where you're vulnerable with respect to China on cyber attacks, on intellectual property, cross-border data flows. You basically are going to have to build in China to sell in China, build somewhere else to sell everywhere else is the way I think it's going to come down to. So you're talking about a structural inflation. Yeah, it is. It is. Which is then going to have an impact, obviously, on interest rates and the cost of debt. So that means higher cost of living for voters is that something that's going to play out in the election that way oh for sure you know the inflation is baking in the cake for the election that's it's we're even if it's decelerating which it is it's too late for biden for the democrats that's that's baked into the cake but it's it's hard to say just how what this cambrian explosion of technology you know quantum and ai and the rest is going to do to reduce prices so there is a tug and a pull here um, and so there are technologies that are going to be bringing prices down, which would be wonderful for people. Um, but a lot of that's going to have, there's going to be a lot of dislocation there. And actually, it's more white collar workers that we disrupted than blue collar workers. At least that's the way we see it in our investment patterns. But we are going into a more inflationary environment, no two ways about it. Yes, technology is going to solve some of these problems, but it's going to be sticky, I think. And that's why I think we're going to have to have interest rates that are longer for higher. Not to mention the fact that I mentioned before the crowding out effect of just a lot of commercial paper, a lot of bonds being floated, um, you know, propping up interest rates. I mean, when I watch the U.S., one one of the things that strikes me is how much continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations there's been on trade policy, whether it's tariff or export controls. Can we expect more of the same, you know, if Trump wins or sort of Nikki Haley wins or DeSantis wins? I think if Trump wins or if Biden wins, yes, is the answer to the question. If a Normal Republican wins, I think you'll see uh, a different tact. I think you'll see um, a protectionist wall against China, no two ways about it. But I think you'll see a more normalized relations with our allies. Um, if you polled House Republicans today, 85% would say, let's do a free trade agreement with Great Britain. No problem. You could probably get the other 15, 20% of the Democrats to go along with it. You just have to have an administration that's willing to go do a trade agreement a Nikki Haley administration, a Ronda Senate administration would be willing to do that. So I do see us getting the rest of TPP underway. Um, we already have trade agreements with Peru, Singapore, Korea, Australia. So it's not a big stretch of the imagination to go there. It's an easy sell to get Great Britain a trade agreement with the UK because what we ought to do, and most Republicans think the, the, the way I do, Let's work with our allies. Let's reduce barriers, expand opportunities. If you're standing still, you're falling behind on trade because they're going out and getting preferential agreements in and among themselves. We are on the outside looking in, so we have to have good agreements. That is logical. That is sellable. 
and you can sell it while you're positioning it as this is the best China policy. Work with our allies in the free world to ring fence China under a more comprehensive multilateral China policy. And, and that is an argument, frankly, people like me just 10 years ago didn't have when we were selling free trade agreements. And again, you have to enforce these agreements. So the, the fall off on, on, on the free trade world, which I come from, is that when we had people violating free trade agreements like China, we didn't do anything about it. So we need to be make sure that we enforce these agreements. I think we're, we're getting to a point where we can do that. A little less mercantilism, a little more trade opportunities with allies under the guise of good, effective China policy with robust trade enforcement so that people play by the rules they sign up for. So if business is listening to this, are they dealing with the free trade Republicans or are they dealing with the protectionist Republicans? Oh, and so you, you can say the same same thing about the Democrats. So oh, if you are planning over the next five years as a business, five to 10 years, which version of um, America should your plans be based on? It depends on what White House you're going to end up with, I think. Uh, if you had to put money on, on if we win the White House, it's probably Trump. Not necessarily so. I still think there's a reasonable chance, you know, a reasonable chance one of these two candidates gets the nomination from him because there's an incredible amount of Trump fatigue. And, you know, I think I, I just don't think he wins. Then it's Biden. And I think Biden, he's just as Joe Biden's never been a free trader. He's never been. Obama was late to the trade game. Biden was never there. So I just don't see the Biden administration coming around. So I think you're more than likely to see a protectionist America for the foreseeable future, for the next four or five years, more than likely. And this issue of stability and consistency, which, as, as we both know, business appreciates, brings me on to the Inflation Reduction Act. So my sense is wherever you stand on the act itself, business decisions have now been made on the basis of the IRA. It's been seen internationally as a pro-business carrot. It'll be interesting to get your thoughts on that uh, to stimulate investment in decarbonization. Is it going to survive? You know, is it going to get gutted under a Trump presidency? Yeah, most of this runs through my old committee, the Ways and Means Committee, because it's mostly tax subsidies. So if we have divided government, which I think we will, because the way the Senate map works, they'll just run their course. Now, most of these tax credits are placed in service. You know, you, you put up a windmill, and once you put it in service, you get that tax credit for 10 years. So these, these policies have long tails to them, economically speaking, from a time horizon without doing anything more. So I don't think you're going to see a repeal because that takes unified government. We won't have that. I don't think you'll see an extension because that takes unified government. And I don't think we'll have that. So I think you'll see the status quo. To your point, the Democrats, you could do carrots or sticks on carbon. They couldn't pass sticks. They like cap and trade. They couldn't pass that. So they went with carrots. In my own view, just as a policy person, um, I put a book out last year at AEI on how to rewrite the tax code and balance the budget and reform our entitlement programs. We wanted to go to a cash flow tax for businesses and throw a carbon tax on top of it. That's border adjustable. And, and by the way, our resulting business income tax would be 15%. Our corporate tax rate would be 15%. We like what your friends over in Ireland did with their tax code, made it really competitive. So I believe this is a policy statement. I'm not saying this is going to happen because it's politically unviable right now. The smarter carbon policy is price signals on carbon through the tax code in a border adjustable way. That way you get international carbon flows. The market delivers the reforms instead of crony capitalism, running it through Washington, picking winners and losers, investing in yesterday's technology. 
That's what the IRA is. It's protectionist. It's sloppy. It doesn't, it's not very effective at, at building new ideas. And a carbon tax is far better policy. Now that's not in the cards right now, but I think personally as a conservative, the price of poker for participating in this issue, trying to decarbonize our economy is give us a supply side tax code that's pro-growth and pro-business, and we'll put carbon taxation inside of that. I think that's the great bargain to have. Um, I think that's what conservatives should bring to the table on this, um, but that's not where we are, just to be clear. I mean, immigration reform has also been a big focus, was a big focus of your time in office. Yeah, it was. What at this stage could be achieved given the political divide? Yeah, I got very close on the issue a couple of times, very close, and Trump literally changed his mind over a weekend at, at one moment. Uh, I think going to a, they call them points-based system, but going to a system where you give visas based on economic need, um, not just H-1Bs, which are high-skilled workers, but also there are you know, labor skills that, that are, have such shortages that you need. You can now craft immigration policies to fill struggling labor markets without depressing people's wages or taking jobs away from Americans, particularly given the fact that the boomers are retiring and our birth rates are not where they need to be. Now, our birth rates need to be 2.4. They're about 2, 2.1. Last couple of years weren't so good, but on trend, they're about 2.1. You can top that off with good legal immigration done in a 21st century technologically savvy way where you're not depressing wages or taking jobs from Americans while you secure your border and fix your asylum laws. Um, we don't want to have the mistakes that a lot of Europeans have made, which is a really ugly and stupid immigration policy, in my opinion. But we... We are blessed. We are blessed with our continent. We're blessed with a steady stream of labor that is easy to assimilate. And we just have to have our laws reflect that and get it right. So the problem is politics. This issue is going to break. It's going to work because issues like this, eventually, when it becomes so obvious that we have to do something, it gets done. You're, you know, one of your former prime ministers said it right. The Americans can be counted upon to do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. Immigration reform is one of those issues. And when we do that, we're going to have a fantastic economic growth. The Congressional Budget Office is telling us our growth rate for the next 30 years is going to be half of what it was for the last 30 years because of labor force participation, because of labor markets. So you can fix that with good welfare policies that have work incentives and work requirements, along with good immigration reforms, are the secret to us dealing with our labor supply problems so that we can get back into trend 3% economic growth instead of having 1.3% growth, which is the current projection. Another political issue that impacts business, uh, which you have spoken about, is identity politics, which helps create dividing lines between political parties. Yeah. How do we move beyond identity politics? It's a damn good question. It's insidious, it's immoral and wrong, in my opinion. The left, uh, you know, a guy named Saul Lewinsky wrote Rules for Radicals back in the 70s, promoting it for the left, it was successfully, you know, done then, and then recently with 21st century technology, then comes the populist right, which sees, oh, wow, <laughs> we can do this too, but with a bigger base of population, and here we are. We've got identity politics on the right and the left. It is immoral and wrong, in my opinion. Um, the answer to your question is, how do we get away from this? Because you have digital incentive structures now that really push identity politics, so you, you can monetize this stuff so easily. And so that is the challenge we have that we've never had in a society before. I think the polarization fatigue and the fact that big problems are going unsolved gets you an electoral moment 
where the proper leaders, a, a, we call them Reagan-esque 21st century Reagans who are you know, inclusive, aspirational, optimistic, people bringing coalitions together can get through that. And the reason, this isn't just happy talk. Glenn Youngkin did this in Virginia just a year ago in a blue state, a conservative Republican. So I do think Tim Scott, I, I know he's not going to get elected president, but you know he's he's a popular politician in America, and this is his brand of politics. So I do think there is another chapter to play for a brand of inclusive, optimistic politics. And I honestly think it's more on the right side than the left, because the left, the progressives are too wrapped up in identity politics that they can't get out of it. It's wrapped up into their ideology. On the right, it's more of a political tactic. Um, and there are some on the right who believe in it, but the vast majority of the right do not. So I do think there is a route out of the political wilderness. It's not through Trump. He is not He plays identity politics, no two ways about it. But it's post-Trump, I think we can get there. That's my goal and aspiration. I hope we, we get the conservative movement there. And it's because you know, politics is, you're, you're a politician, it's supply and demand. You know, voters demand identity politics and politicians supply it. I think there is going to be a new demand sequence of voters demanding because they're sick of polarization, they're sick of problems getting unsolved. They're going to demand, you know, something getting done, unification, and the politician that successfully supplies it, I think, is going to see success. And I pray, hope, and think it will be on my side of the aisle. But in the meantime, how can business be responsive to its stakeholders while at the same time getting uh, avoid getting caught in the crossfire of the culture wars? Yeah, my advice to most of these CEOs, I talk to them every week, is stay out of the culture wars. I mean, if you the day you start commenting on culture wars. And then you don't, that's a comment in and of itself. So stick to your knitting, sell your product, do your thing, and be, be very careful weighing in on these things because there's a reverberation. You may be doing this for your employees, but your, your consumers are over here. So you've got stakeholders that are at odds with one another. Stay in the fairway, stay down the center lane of the traffic, and just be strong enough as a leader to withstand the need to comment on these things on a daily basis. When absolute outrages occur, like like this rage of anti-Semitism we're seeing, of course, things like that you need to speak out against. I was going to say, where do you draw the line? That's the eye of the beholder. That's why actually we're very busy at Taneo helping these people think about how how and where to draw the line. So you know, it's it's kind of you know it when you see it and how to draw the line. And frankly, that's why you have to start thinking about politicians. Look, you you think like a I mean, I'm not calling you a politician as an aspersion. <laughs> you're you, you're an elected member of parliament. When you're a politician, you think about the knockoff effects of every decision you make, the six or seven stages down the path on how it ping-pongs around. You don't come out of business school thinking like that as an executive. You think one or two steps down, and that's all. So what you need to think about as a leader is the six or seven moves down the road on how it ping-pongs around all the constituency and what it looks like at the end of the day and what the other side is going to do. Politicians are trained to think like that regrettably CEOs now need to think like that. And those of us who are in the private sector can help them do that. That's more or less what we do. That's very interesting because sometimes the pressure is not from employees, but you've actually got different demands. If you're a business, you, you could have a different demand from Texas versus California. How do you navigate it when there are actually different regulatory demands being made of you within the same country? And in some cases, across countries, how you operate in the U.S. versus how you operate, say, in Scandinavia. 
Yeah, I mean, ESG is still a bit of the eye of the beholder. It's a little bit of a voodoo science. I mean, you have SASB and some other metrics bodies, but there aren't actual regulations that are specific on these things. Environmental social governance. Yeah, it's the S that you get in trouble. The S in society is where it gets cultural, and that is at where you have to really be careful. So if you have a good G and a good E, you can have a small S and, and just navigate it that way, in my opinion. That's how you stick to your knitting as a, as a company, and that's how you can probably navigate all these different global trends that are coming at you, especially if you're a multinational. So you reluctantly became the speaker, third in line to the presidency. You were a vice presidential nominee, and you stepped out of political life before you turned 50. Why did you make that decision? And what would the conditions be for you to get back involved? Well, I mean, I did 20 years in Congress and I was a staffer for five before then. Um, my main reason was my kids were all in high school at the time and I saw them on Sundays and that was it. And I, I'd lost my dad when I was a young guy and I didn't want to, my kids to get out of high school seeing me more on TV than they saw me in person and not knowing them. So I'm a Catholic and we do guilt really well. And so the Catholic guilt was catching up with me. So that was number one. Number two, if I did a third term as speaker, I did two terms. Um, it was obvious to me, Trump was going to be in re-election. The Senate was going to shut down. I wasn't going to get, I had the most productive session since Reagan's first term, my last term as speaker. 1,172 bills passed, about half made it to law. Massive things like rewriting the tax code overhauling lots of government agencies, regulatory relief. I knew the next session was not going to be nearly as productive from a policy standpoint. That plus Trump was getting crazier by the day. And then, and I didn't frankly want to have, I, I didn't want to have to defend him in the election if he did crazy stuff. So it, it made it an easy decision for me to make. Plus I'm a believer in term limits, believe it or not, even though I did 10 terms, I don't think you should be there for all of your life. I think you should go do other things in your life. I got elected when I was 28. I retired when I was 48. I didn't want to be there for 40 or 50 years. I wanted to go do other things with my life. Who knows? I mean, I can have three careers at the stage, I mean, at the pace I'm in. I'm 53 right now. You know, maybe down the road, but it's not in the front of my mind right now. I'm really enjoying life right now. Um, my life is revolved around economic policy. It's where my love is. And I spend a lot of my time either in my, like my vocational or in my business aspects in the field of economics. And I defended the free market economic system for 25 years as a public policy person in public office. Now I get to actually immerse myself within that system. And I find it to be a really glorious education. And I, I love it. So down the road, who knows? But right now, I'm kind of happy where I am. Speaker Ryan, thank you for coming. Great to be with you, Sam. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and Vice Chairman of Teneo, the global CEO advisory firm. Next time on the geopolitics of business, we turn to the theme of the British economy post-Brexit. We look at the prospects of the UK three years on from leaving the European Union and consider what its unique selling point can be outside the main blocks of our changing world. We're not going to disappear from the planet. We're not going to all become impoverished overnight or anything like that. It's that we just won't be as successful as we were, as influential as we should be. We need to prioritise issues to do with boosting productivity. Uh, the role of government is to make it a lot easier for private investment spending to be a real incentive. Two conversations with two British political and economic big beasts. Former Deputy Prime Minister and businessman Lord Michael Heseltine and Lord Jim O'Neill, former UK Treasury Minister. 
former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and Chatham House. Thanks for listening to the Geopolitics of Business. I'm Sam Jima, and I'm the show's host and executive producer. Our show is produced by FB Studios, whose team includes Ashley Westman, Claudia Tatey, and Rob Sachs, with additional production support from Nikki Black of SGA Media. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe and share with your friends. Views and opinions on the show do not necessarily represent those of foreign policy, its affiliates, or any institution the host is associated with. And as a reminder, while our program does contain broad advice that can be useful for investors, we highly recommend that individual investors consult with an independent financial advisor before making any investment decisions.